Today, we will be speaking with David Brown. He is an Associate Professor of Finance in the Ellert College of Management at the University of Arizona. His research has been published in the Review of Financial Studies, the Journal of Financial Economics, and the Review of Finance. He was recognized with the 2018 TIAA Paul A. Samuelson Award for Outstanding Scholarly Writing on Lifelong Financial Security. His research has also been featured by the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Forbes, Consumer Reports, Money Digest, and Value Walk. Prior to academia, David worked in high-frequency algorithmic trading and private student lending. I hope you enjoyed the talk. To start off, what is arbitrage? Explain how within a market like ETFs, it is seen. Yeah, arbitrage is the idea that sometimes we have two assets that are identical and should have the same price, but they don't. Um, and when I say asset, what I really mean is a claim to a stream of cash flows. So for example, if you think about the S&P 500 firms, uh, you might buy the SPY, right? The One of the biggest ETFs in the world, one of the oldest, and it gives you the right to all the dividends that those 500 companies produce. You could also buy those 500 companies individually in the right proportions and get those same dividend cash flows from building a portfolio on your own. You can basically recreate the same cash flows either from the ETF or a portfolio you build yourself. So because of that, the two of those things should be priced in the same way. When they're not, that's what arbitrage is. The idea that you can buy the cheaper asset and sell the more expensive asset. And in the process, you've bought the same cash flows. You've just made the spread between those two different assets. And how is this discrepancy created between the two different pricings? There's going to be different people that want to buy ETFs versus people that want to buy all 500 stocks in, a, in an underlying ETF basket. So if you're a big bank on Wall Street, you could, you know, you have the trading capabilities and you have the staff to easily go buy all 500 stocks. And it can actually be much cheaper for you to do it that way than to buy an ETF itself. Whereas for you and I, we don't want to go through the process on E-Trade of buying all 500 stocks and figuring out exactly how much to buy of each one, uh, even though we can buy fractional shares and can do it in today's market, to be a big chore. So instead, we tend to buy ETFs. And so there can be a situation where different groups of people want to buy the ETFs versus the stocks. And so that difference in demand can drive the prices apart from one another. And for big hedge funds, big firms, how profitable is this strategy? Uh, it can be very profitable for some of the biggest funds out there. Um, the, the people that can do this arbitrage are called authorized participants. So think State Street, who is the sponsor for the SPY, again, that biggest ETF in the world. They are the sponsor and they contract with big, you know, big Wall Street banks to be these authorized participants. Those authorized participants can actually create or redeem ETF shares at the end of the day. So for example, say that the ETF is more expensive than the underlying basket of stocks. What the bank can do is they can buy the underlying 500 stocks, say for $10. They can then sell the ETF, even though they don't own the ETF. So they're selling it in what's called naked. They can sell the ETF, say for $11. Uh, the gap is never that big, but that just kind of illustrates the idea. So they sell it for $11. 
At the end of the day, they then take the underlying shares of stock they have, they give them to the ETF sponsor, and the ETF sponsor gives them back an ETF share that allows them to cover their naked short position. So these authorized participants have a very special place. They're basically contracted to have this ability, uh, and it gives them the opportunity to make big profits on this that ultimately depends on how big the spread is between the underlying stocks and the ETF itself, which in normal times is not a huge difference. But if you can do this, you know, 10,000, 100,000 times a day, you can start to make some real money on it. Uh, when it becomes more profitable, but also more risky, is when markets start moving around a lot. Uh, for example, in March of 2020, bond market ETFs um, had their prices deviate substantially from the underlying assets. Uh, and that's precisely because this arbitrage became riskier and more expensive. And so the authorized participants didn't keep the prices as tightly in line. Now, switching gears a little, explain what non-fundamental demand is. And in your research, you talk about shocks in non-fundamental demand. Explain what impact these have on markets. So when we think about what is fundamental demand, we, we're thinking about the fundamental value of a company. So just what are the cash flows worth? And so it doesn't take into consideration things like, you know, I want to buy this ETF because it gives me good feelings. Or, you know, a lot of people saw on Reddit that GameStop is a good idea to buy. And so we should just buy GameStop now in, in that, you know, now famous run-up that we saw. So... There are all sorts of things that drive this. Think about uh, when people invest their money into a retirement account, right? You do that every couple of weeks just as part of your paycheck. You're not doing it because the fundamentals of the company are sound. You have money, you want to invest it in the market. That's a non-fundamental flow. Do you think markets are more exposed now to non-fundamental demand shocks than they were prior? I'd say yes. There's a, Since the pandemic, a lot more people have engaged in stock market trading. The more people we have engaged in stock market trading and the more social media gives them information that ends up decisions, the more volatile markets can become. I don't think the GameStop phenomenon happens probably a decade ago. Uh, we did, Reddit wasn't nearly as popular and there weren't nearly as many people trading on apps like Robinhood. Um, but the more people we have engaged in the markets like that, the more volatility we can have, the more impact this non-fundamental demand can have. And how have ETFs and the rise of passive investing affected non-fundamental demand and non-fundamental demand shocks? This is less clear. Um, I think we've seen a lot of investors kind of migrate from investing in individual stocks to ETFs which in a sense could move some of the non-fundamental demand away from individual stocks and to those ETFs, uh, which actually speaks to our research and the results we find that when non-fundamental demand hits ETFs, it tends to move the prices away from the fundamental values. And then we see that that predictably reverses in the, in the near future. So that's kind of the point of our paper is that you get this predictable movement in ETF returns that's driven by non-fundamental demand into them. With ETFs as a vehicle to kind of concentrate investors' non-fundamental demand, before this was all just spread across stocks in the entire market. Now we're concentrating it, which we think leads to this return predictability that we find. And going back to the idea of arbitrage, I've heard the idea and read about it 
that with the rise of passive investing, there's going to be active managers who find a way to take advantage of the passive investors and the market sort of just hiding this wave. It's a situation where arbitrage becomes more prominent. It's hard to say. Um, clearly, the more passive investing we have, the more opportunities that gives for active managers. That said, we still have more active management in the in the U.S. than we do passive management. So, what the right balance is between the two that gives kind of you know not too many arbitrage opportunities to the active investors, but markets maintain a, remain efficient enough. That's not clear, and that's a, a hard question that a lot of people are thinking about. Talking about retail investing, what change have you seen in retail investing? And how do you think this change is going to continue to develop? Uh, the big change I think that's happened is the fractional shares in, in apps like Robinhood, right? Before you couldn't necessarily buy, you know, $15 of a company's stock, whereas now you can easily do that because of the fractional. This is just enabled by, you know, apps that kind of gamify the stock trading experience like Robinhood. Um, so that clearly has made a different avenue for people to get involved investing, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, having people in, interested in the stock market, investing for the long term in the stock market, I, I think is great. Um, gambling via the stock market has less direct benefit to society uh, and to the individuals that are doing it. So it's, it's kind of a double edged sword there. I also don't think it's one we can necessarily like, you know, put back in the bag. Right now that we've given people the ability to trade fractional shares and to do it in a gamified environment, we can't really regulate that and take it away. Um, I suppose the SEC could try, but I don't see that happening. So I expect we're going to see even more of this gamification of investing as the big brokerage firms try to attract more customers. In your paper, you also talk about high flow and low flow ETFs. Could you explain the difference between these two types of ETFs? Yes, yeah, some ETFs are going to naturally a little bit more non-fundamental demand. And a great example of this are the levered ETFs. So levered ETFs are ETFs that are built to return two or three times the return of the underlying product. For example, the S&P 500. So you can invest in SPY if you just want the S&P 500 return. There are also ETFs that'll give you two times the S&P 500 return or even three times or negative one times or negative two times or negative three times the ETF return. So you can actually bet against the markets. So these levered products are good for short-term hedging, uh, but there are some known problems with them that you know over the long term, they're not very good investments at all. So it's not good for an investor to be in levered ETFs for very long. And so... What ends up happening is I think retail investors use them a lot more than professional traders. And so we see more concentration of this non-fundamental, you know, not necessarily based on valuations model uh, trading that happens and can essentially lead to more volatility and more arbitrage in those leveraged ETFs. Can you explain how leveraged ETFs are able to produce two to three times the regular return? They use derivative contracts. So instead of, you know, explicitly borrowing, um, let's see. So instead of, so to create a leveraged product, you could do it a couple of ways. You could borrow, say you had $100 of assets, for example. You could borrow $100 extra 
and then buy two hundred dollars, pay back your loan at the end of the period, and you still have your hundred dollars of assets. So that could give you essentially a leverage return by borrowing capital. So most of them don't do it that way. They actually use futures or forward products to allow them to take kind of these levered bets by using derivative contracts. What advice would you give to young investors, people who are just getting started in this field? I would say save often, save as much as you can and invest in index funds. Uh, whether it's a mutual fund or whether it's an ETF, they're both extremely low cost these days. I I am a strong believer in just kind of set it and, and, and leave it passive investing. Uh, that works for me. Uh, I will say when I was in your shoes back as, you know, just graduating from college, I really enjoyed analyzing individual companies, making stock picks. And I did that with a small part of my portfolio. I think that's a great activity to do as long as that's kind of your hobby and what you invest your time into. I don't think anyone can expect to beat the professionals on Wall Street on stocks. But if you focus on a couple um, and make that a small part of your portfolio, I think that's a fun thing to engage in. And talking about retirement, similar question, what would you recommend to 18, 20, 22 year olds who have retirement a long way to go, but when should they start thinking about it and what should they be doing? The power of compounding is amazing, right? I think Einstein said it's the single most powerful force in the universe. So the more you can start saving earlier, the better. Uh, I actually ran through an example where if you save $5,000 every year for 40 years, at an 8% market return, you end up with $1.3 million. So essentially, you're only saving $200,000 over those 40 years, but it's turning into $1.3 million because of the power of the compounding. So starting early is key. My other big recommendation I make to students is start out by saving more and don't bump your standard of living as high when you get that first job. Right? When you're used to living like a student, you have roommates, you're keeping costs down, and you all of a sudden get this first job where you're making a lot more money than you're used to. And it's very easy to say, hey, let's just go spend a lot. But you can still have a big bump in your standard of living without spending too much, and you can get yourself into the habit of saving early. Um, the other big recommendation is by saving early, you're able to build yourself flexibility. Right. If if you get to be in a position 20 or 30 years now where you've saved a lot and you have a big nest egg built up, you have options. Right. You can retire early. You can start your company. You can, you know, pursue whatever your passions are. If you don't save significantly, well, you're not going to have the same options. You you might not be willing to quit your job and you know start that new project you're really interested in. So the more you save early and get in that habit, I think it really just opens up options for your future.